We are very encouraged to hear what God is doing through City Life to change lives. If you have a story to share of how City Life has impacted you, please let us know at story at citylifecenter.org. Welcome to the City Life Podcast. Our desire is to make Jesus known. We pray that these messages will help equip you to become a follower of Jesus who is empowered to influence and shape culture. Enjoy the message. The, the series is called Real Questions, and these are real questions that people ask you in our culture. And today I'm dealing with another one of those real questions. But I want to start off with this question. Do you believe? Now here, here's a question. Does, does science, common sense, lack of evidence, or logic cause you to disregard the Bible and then even disregard church? Good question. Now, you might say, no, that's not me. Well, then, let me ask you another question. Do you feel sometimes ill-prepared to answer questions coming from uh, atheists and agnostics and skeptics? Well, if so, today, I'm going to address another one of these real questions. And this is questions that a lot of people struggle with and wrestle with, but I'm going to do it from a platform of intelligence. So get your names, uh, I mean, get your notes out and get your Bibles out. Open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Hebrews 12, 1. Now, when you get your Bibles open to that, please hold your place there because I'll, I will get to that scripture. Don't worry about it. Don't get afraid. It's like, he's not going to say it. Yes, I will. I will in the message. But hold your place because I will get to it. Today's question is, is the Bible truly believable? Now, I, I, I think this is a valid question, and I'm going to share with you what I believe and why I believe it. I, I'm going to talk logic. I'm going to talk culture. I'm going to talk history. And I'm going to talk literature. And I think this is uh, all important, for, especially for this type of a discussion. Now, now, first of all, I want you to understand who I am. I'm, I'm a man who's had a faith experience with God through Jesus. And it has radically altered my life. And I've studied the Bible diligently all of my life. And, and uh, I've found that my faith experience is deeply rooted in the scriptures, the Bible. So, you see, the Bible, therefore, is my foundation of how I order my life as I look to Jesus and follow Jesus. In fact, even as a church, uh, we, we have a little saying around here, which is really important to us. We, we say at City Life Church, we are Bible-based and Jesus-focused. Now, this is very important to us. We base our beliefs on the Bible instead of social trends. We also choose not to focus on rules or regulations or, or traditions or dogma. Instead, we focus on Jesus who gives us hope. Understanding that, platform and really who I am and, and what we're about, I'm ready for us to get down to business. Now, scholars, they often propose that the real historical Jesus, and there is no doubt there was a real historical Jesus, they say that he was really a charismatic teacher. Uh, he, he provoked some opposition, and then he was executed because of the opposition that he stirred up. Uh, some of these scholars claim that Jesus was, uh, some of these scholars say that the people of that time claimed that Jesus was raised from the dead, and other people claimed that Jesus continued to live on kind of like spiritually uh, in the lives of the disciples. And 
And so these scholars theorized that there was, there was kind of like an eventual power struggle that happened within the, the church. And, and there was this group of people that we'll just call them the divine Jesus party, the people who really believe he was the son of God was resurrected from the dead. And, and that group finally won out, won the battle. And so to promote their views, what they did is they, uh, they wrote out these texts, these what we call the New Testament. And scholars also, some will say, they, they go on to say that, that, uh, that they did this and they began to uh, suppress these alternative views of Jesus that have only recently come to light. Uh, and, and the things that have recently come to light are what we call the Gnostic Gospels of Thomas and Judas. Now, these people say that, that uh, early Christianity was very doctrinally diverse, and they had a lot of different beliefs, and, and now that we have the, these Gnostic Gospels, well, we, we now we can't trust the Bible because, because it all is a mess, and that presents a challenge. The challenge it presents for me and for you is that Christian faith actually requires a belief in the Bible. Some people will say, well, you know, the Bible's full of great stories, and, but you can't really take the Bible literally. And, and wh what they mean is this, is that the Bible is not entirely trustworthy because some parts are historically unreliable and other parts of the Bible are culturally regressive. So I'm going to address those two things. And so the, the first question I want to ask is, is the Bible historically reliable. In fact, in America, it's widely believed that the Bible is a historically unreliable collection of fables and legends and stories. And, and so then, as a result of that, I mean, how do I respond as the, the leader of a Jesus-focused Bible-based church? Well, first of all, I, you know, I just want to put this out here. It's way beyond our time frame today for me to examine all of the issues of historical accuracy from every single element of the Bible. And of course, I think you would understand that. Instead, I'm, I'm going to ask a question as to whether we can trust the Gospels, which is the New Testament accounts of the life of Jesus, and consider whether or not they are historically reliable or not. And why would I choose that? It's because that is actually the core of our faith. So if everything is built upon that, why not go to the core and start there? And really, that's what I'm doing today. But you now, when I say the Gospels, what I'm talking about are the four canonical Gospels, uh, that, that's, which was originally called the canon. Uh, it's not the canon that we shoot with, you know, uh, come and take it canon that some of you might have, uh, uh, you know, uh, that you wave on your flag. No, that's not it. But, 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 uh, but it's, it's the... It's the uh, the part of the Bible that, that early believers said this is authentic, and it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels. Now, these Gospels have been recognized by the church since the very beginning as being authentic and authoritative, and, uh, and, but, but now there are many people who believe that the canonical Gospels, those four Gospels, are only four of really scores of other texts, and the Gospels, they're saying, are, were really written uh, because there was this hierarchy of power that wanted to suppress the so-called Gnostic Gospels. And so, so therefore, because all of this was happening at that time, some theorized that, that really the four Gospels are nothing more than legends themselves. 
but I, I, and that's why I don't mind saying what is out there. But there are several good reasons why the four Gospels should be considered as historically reliable rather than legends. And I'll explain several of those reasons. One of them is what I call the timing logic. And this is, this is going to demand that you think. I want you to think with me for a little bit. It's because I believe that timing makes the biblical legends claims implausible. Now, the four Gospels were written at the very most 40 to 60 years after the death of Jesus. Now, Paul's letters, which are also in the New Testament, they were written between 15 to 25 years after the death of Jesus. And Paul's letters, which preceded the writing of the Gospels, they actually provide an outline of the events of the life of Jesus Christ that we find in the Gospels, such as his miracles and, and his, his claims and his crucifixion and his resurrection. Now, all reputable scholars will agree on the timing of these writings. So this means that the biblical account of the life of Jesus was circulating at a time when hundreds of people were still living that had been present at the time of his ministry. The gospel author Luke, he, he claims that the eyewitnesses were still alive and this was circulating at the time. Uh, he got his accounts, even, he even said he got his accounts live, face-to-face -face from the eyewitnesses themselves. The gospel writers even go so far to name eyewitnesses and people who interacted with the story of Christ within the text to assure uh, other people of, of the accounts of authenticity that happened. And a good example of this is what we see in the book of Mark. In Mark chapter 15, verse 21, as Jesus was carrying the cross to, to, the, to Golgotha to be crucified. Take a look at this little text right here. It says, A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, leaving no doubt to who this person is, was passing by on his way in from the country. And they forced him to carry the cross. Now, pause for a second. There, a quick reading of that, you just brush right past it, but there's no reason for the authors to include the names of people unless the readers knew that they could have access to those people. In fact, Paul encouraged readers to please go and check with the eyewitnesses. And he did this so that, so that they could establish the truth of what was being said about Jesus' life and his events and the things that surrounded his ministry. So, so all of this decisively refutes the idea that the Gospels were anonymous and they were collective and there were these evolving oral traditions that just got crazier and crazier as time went by. Instead, really what they are is oral histories that were taken directly from the mouths of the living eyewitnesses. Now, here's what's interesting. This is actually the same system that we use today in our courtrooms to validate truth. And it is still considered to be the most reliable system. So, not only were Jesus' supporters still alive, but there were also a lot of the bystanders and officials and the opponents who had actually seen him teach, seen his actions, and watched him die. And those people would have been especially ready to challenge any accounts that were fabricated. So consider this. It would have been impossible then for a new faith to spread as it did 
had Jesus never said or done the things that are mentioned in the four Gospels. Paul, I mean, he even confidently asserted to a government official, to a group of government officials, about the events of Jesus' life, saying these are public knowledge. He, he clearly said to King Agrippa and the other officials that were there, he says these things were not done in a corner. So, so the people of Jerusalem had been there. And they were there in the crowds, and they were the people who watched and heard and interacted with Jesus. So the timing logic, along with the eyewitnesses, basically squashes the legends theory. I just want to say, I believe the Bible can be trusted. I know you might say, yeah, yeah but pastor, I have seen the movies, and, and, and I, I, I do have a lot of questions about the Gnostic Gospels, because... You know, don't they tell a different story that contradicts the four Gospels? Well, I want to plainly say that I do not believe in the authenticity of the, of the Gnostic Gospels. i tell you why. Because I, I want to back that up with, with a good reason. It's because the four canonical Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they were written much, much, much earlier than the so-called Gnostic Gospels. For example, the, the Gospel of Thomas, which is the best known of all the Gnostic documents, it is a translation from Syriac, which was never spoken in Jerusalem. Plus, uh, the scholars tell us that the Syriac traditions, which came out of Syria, and the Gospel of Thomas can be dated at its very earliest at 175 to 200 AD. Now, Catch this, that is about 125 to 150 years after the four canonical Gospels were in widespread use. You see, these books, the, the Gnostics, they can't survive what I just presented to you, which is the timing logic. Nor do they have the backing of the eyewitnesses. Plus, they were written in a different place, in a different language, under a different culture. In fact, one of the writers from the New Yorker magazine, uh, Adam Gopnik, he, he wrote that the Gnostic Gospels are so late that, and here, here's his quote, he said that they, they no more challenge the basis of the church's faith than the discovery of a document from the 19th century written in Ohio defending King George would be a challenge to the basis of American democracy. That's a scholar saying that. They understand literature, timing, eyewitnesses. So the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're different because they are authoritative eyewitness accounts and they were accepted almost immediately. Plus, the acceptance of these Gospels, they continued for centuries into the future while the Gnostic Gospels were never legitimately accepted by the church. So we would be wise to use the basics, you know, and just to say, look at science, look at the timelines, look at the literary styles. And if we did, we come to the same conclusions that people have come to all these centuries. I believe the Bible can be trusted. There's actually a lot more I would love to share about this, especially concerning the Gospels and the death and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, but... 
I'm not going to do that in this message. I, I do have it available for you. Uh, There's actually my Easter message from earlier this year. And, and if you want to go deeper into this topic, you really need to listen to it because it's really a sister message to this. Uh, if you didn't get it, download the City Life app. And when you get into, get into the app, click uh, Media and then find this message called Real Questions. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? And that's the date, 41617. And when you find that, you'll have another message here that, that's a companion message to this, which presents a lot of other information that I'm not able to present today. I still, though, also, I have another line of logic that I think it's important that we look at. And I call this the details logic, because I believe details crush the biblical fiction claims. Now, the literary form of the Gospels um, it's way too detailed to be legend. Let's talk about ancient fiction. Ancient fiction was actually nothing like today's fiction. A, a modern fiction is very realistic. Uh, we have a lot of details and dialogue, and that's what we, that's what we see as fiction. So, so it's, it's normal for us to see things that way uh, because fiction today reads like eyewitness accounts. But our genre of fiction was only developed within the last... 300 years. Ancient fiction was high and it was remote. Come on, I started reading it in sixth grade. I remember very clearly. Details are lacking and the only details that you would find would be details that were inserted to help with the character development of, of a major character in the story. I mean, I think, read, read Beowulf, read the Iliad. You'll, you'll see this very clearly, what fiction was like. See, in ancient fiction, in ancient fables, nobody ever notices the rain falling. Um, no one ever talks about falling asleep with a sigh. Now, an educated literary conclusion would be that the four Gospels, therefore, are not fiction because they were written during this time period. For example, Mark 4, we talk about a cushion where Jesus is asleep on it in the back of the boat, in the stern of the boat, actually. Jo jo John chapter 21, there's the 153 fish. It's where Paul, excuse me, Peter was 100 yards out on the water when he saw Jesus on the beach, and they jumped out of the boat, and they caught 153 fish. Uh, John 8, there's Jesus and his finger in the dust as he listened to the woman who was caught in adultery as he was doodling. Now, none of those details are important to the plot, or the development of the characters at all. No one wrote fiction like that for another 1,700 years. The only explanation of why an ancient writer would mention a cushion, 153 fish, and doodling in the dust, plus the many other details that we find in the Gospels, it's because the details were etched in the memory of the eyewitnesses. Now I want you to listen to this. There's a, there's a gentleman by the name of Richard Bachman. He is a recollective memory researcher. And what he has done is he's uh, compiled a great deal of research by psychologists on what's called recollective memory. And, and here's, what, here's what his studies present to us. He, he identifies the marks of eyewitness accounts of, of particular events and how they differ uh, from the speculative or fictional accounts, something someone would make up. 
He says, recollective memory is very selective. It's, it's unique, has unique, even inconsequential events and irrelevant details are in the memories. And, and, it, and it really takes it from a vantage point of a participant rather than some kind of an omniscient narrator. Now, interestingly enough, what he presents there are the same tools that are used by interrogators right here in our own city, a few blocks from here, when they are determining whether a person is lying or telling the truth. Here's my challenge. Apply today's acceptable interrogation method to the Gospels. And if you do that, experts would say, you would say, these are literal eyewitness accounts. I believe the Bible can be trusted. Yet, yet, yet there's still another question that arises, and this is a different kind of a question. It says, well, can we really trust the Bible culturally? I know that today people become very, very passionate and even upset regarding what they see as a regressive or even an outmoded teaching of the Bible. Um, their theory says that the Bible supports slavery and the Bible supports the subjugation of women. And these positions to be really, they, they seem to be so outrageous in contemporary society that people simply have, uh, they just reject all of the parts of the Bible and even Christianity as a whole. So let's dig, let's dig into that. I think, I think we should. I, I'm not afraid to deal with the tough issues, so here we go. <laughs> Ephesians 6.5, slaves obey your masters. Can we talk about it? Well, this pastor does. A lot of people will throw down their Bibles and run away from it whenever they find a passage such as this. And this is just one example of several. But here's what I want to do. I, 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 want, I want to counsel you that when you come across something like this, slow down and consider the different perspectives on these issues that trouble you. And that way you'll be able to continue to read and learn and profit from the Bible at the same time while you continue to wrestle with some of the other concepts. That's wisdom. Most of what uh, a lot of people find offensive in the scriptures can be cleared up with a decent commentary that takes it and puts it into a historical context. For example, slaves obey your masters. Now, most of you here, I would say, are Americans. Most American readers would immediately and definitely understandably think of African slave trade of the 18th and 19th century or even the human trafficking and sex slavery that's practiced today even in this city. Using that filter, which is our filter, because that's what we see and that's what we know has been around us, we interpret these texts the, to say that, well, then obviously slavery is permissible and slavery is desirable. But this is a classic case of ignoring the cultural and the historical difference between us and the writer and the original readers 2,000 years ago in that particular region. So let's talk about it. In the first century uh, Roman Empire, when the New Testament was written and where the New Testament was written, at that time there was not a great difference between slaves and an average free person. In fact, if you even take the Greek word slaves that we find there, you will see that that definition of that term from the Greek language is not the same definition as we see slavery today. It's different. So in reality, the two were not horribly different. Um, 
from a person, it would be similar to a person in a sense who was submitting themselves to like a long-term contractual work agreement that actually gives the business uh, kind of like an upper hand in the relationship. See, at that time, slaves were not even distinguishable from other people. Uh, they weren't distinguishable by race, by clothing, or by speech. Uh, in fact, they loved and they lived just like everybody else. They were not segregated from the rest of society in any way. This is a historical fact. Now, from a financial standpoint, slaves were, they, they, they made the same wages as free workers. And they were usually not even poor. In fact, most importantly, very few slaves were slaves for life. Most could reasonably hope to be free from their slavery commitment from about from, uh, maybe 10 to 15 years. Now, by contrast, huge contrast, slavery in the New World is much, much, much more brutal. The type of slavery we think of is called chattel slavery. It's where a slave's whole person is the property of the master. And that person can be raped, tortured, sold, and killed at the will of the owner. Also, African slave trade and even much of the sex trade uh, and, and human trafficking that is here today begins and is resourced through kidnapping. Now, the Bible unconditionally condemns kidnapping and the trafficking in slaves. It's there in the scriptures. Therefore, while the early church, while the early Christians, they didn't campaign to abolish first century slavery, well, the truth is later Christians did because they saw what was happening, this, this chattel slavery in the new world. And, and, and that type of slavery could in no way be squared away with biblical teaching. In fact, a lot of people don't know this. But the modern anti-slave movement began in the church along with the modern women's rights movement started in the church. So to reject the Bible as regressive, really what it is is to assume that you have now arrived at, at this ultimate historic moment from which you can judge everything that is regressive and progressive. That belief, let's just be honest, it's narrow, it's exclusive, and I'll even go so far to say it's arrogant. See, it's important also to establish that there is a difference between the major themes in the Bible and less primary teachings. That's important. Um, for example, the Bible talks about the sacrifice of Jesus, but it also talks about how widows should be treated in the church. Now, the work of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus, that's foundational. But without that, the secondary teachings don't even make sense. It's therefore important to consider the Bible's core claims about who Jesus is, whether or not Jesus rose from the dead before you, be, before you begin to reject the less central teachings, the peripheral teachings. See, if you don't trust the Bible enough to let the Bible challenge and correct your thinking, then, I mean, how could you ever have a personal relationship with God? I talk about personal relationships. A personal relationship is, is where the other person is able to contradict you. 
For example, if my wife is not allowed to contradict me, then we do not have an intimate relationship. And it's even more interesting because if, if, if you just go to the scriptures and you pick and choose what you want to believe and then reject the rest, then you would never have a God that would contradict you. You will have created a God in your own image designed to serve your desires and your needs. It, it would be a God of your own making. And that's not a God that you can have personal relationship with. See, only if your God can say things that may even outrage you or make you struggle, just like in a real friendship or a real marriage, would you ever know that you've gotten a hold of the authentic God. So an authoritative Bible is a precondition, I believe, for personal relationship with God. An authoritative Bible is, is not the enemy of a personal relationship with God. I've read the Bible. I've read it, I've read it many times, all of it. I'll be honest with you, there are some parts that I struggle with, but, but I believe that it is the Word of God. So you know what I do? Is I keep reading it. I read it every day. I indulge in it. I research it. And, and I attempt to, to understand the Bible and apply it to my life, allowing it to point me to Jesus. Because I believe the Bible can be trusted. I was recently in a city meeting that I was called to where... Christian leaders from across Fort Worth were making very impassioned statements about excerpts from a video that went viral over the internet regarding police abuse of authority. In fact, at this meeting, there was a moderating panel of five individuals that had come in from Washington, D.C., and they were put there to make sense of the situation. People were making a lot of comments, very strong, impassioned comments about what they felt and what they thought and what was really going on in the city. And I, I finally just asked a question because I started challenging. And I asked a question. I said, okay, hold on. Who in this room has taken the time to watch both the video shot by the young lady and the video that was taken from the police body cam in their entirety? I expected a few responses, but the room fell, fell uh, eerily silent. And you could feel the tension rising at that point because not one person in the room had done so. So I thought, well, it's quiet. I'm going to talk again. So I said, why not take the necessary 40 minutes to watch it all? Because if you watch it all, it actually might help you to understand context and motivations. I went on to say, you know, we're all supposed to be the leaders of the city in a spiritual way, and how can we ever help people in our city if we're only echoing the statements of the people that we just choose to agree with without checking out public evidence ourselves? Now, the moderators from Washington, D.C., they didn't allow me to speak anymore after I said that. Because the truth is, some people just don't want to dig deep. Some people just want to argue opinions and indulge in narrow-mindedness. I'm just telling you, I'm, I'm not better than anyone else, but I'm just not into that. I don't want to do that. What a boring, annoying way to live. 
So, so let, let's, let's take this over and look at the Gospels. In the same light, what about the Gospels? Have you read the Gospels? See, it's interesting how strong someone's opinion can be when they've never actually even read or studied them in its entirety. You know, if you're, if you're going to believe something, if you're into this God thing and you're going to believe it, then, then know what you believe in. In fact, if you take the time to even read the four Gospels, and you should, you will discover this, that about 50% that's in there is dedicated to the last week of the life of Jesus. Now, if I were telling the story of a person and their life, would I just focus in on the last week? Why would they do that? Well, it's because they focused on what's most important, which is the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. Did Jesus come and die on the cross? And was Jesus raised from the dead? Did he or not? And, and that is the most important question because it's the central message of Christianity. The central message of Christianity is not how to be a better person. It's not about five steps to business success. It's not about how to even get God to like you more. This faith is about how Jesus forgives me when I can't forgive myself. It's about a Jesus who gives me purpose and identity that frees me from guilt and shame and condemnation. A Jesus, a man who gives me life to the full and provides me with the hope of an eternal future that no one can even comprehend. Now, I'll tell you, I can follow and believe in a man like that. I can give my life for a man who gives me hope and a future. I decided a long time ago that my faith and my belief in Jesus is not going to be found in a list of rules or from a denomination or religious institution or in a formula on how to be a better person, but in a man, and his name is Jesus Christ, God made flesh who came and dwelt among us and lived a perfect life and who's sacrificed his life so that I could be free, so that Tim could have hope. And you too. Hey, here's the truth. In our intelligence, we become unintelligent quite often because we overcomplicate. We get bogged down with personalities and politics and technicalities. And you know, When it comes to the church, that's just a distraction from Jesus. When I took the wheel here at City Life, I was, I was determined that this church would not be known for overcomplicating, but to make the main thing the main thing. And that main thing is I'm the main man, and his name is Jesus Christ. He is the hope of the world. Because offense hinders Unbelief hinders. Prejudice hinders. Arguing hinders. Doubt hinders. I believe the Bible can be trusted. I believe in Jesus. Take a look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Because here's what the Bible also tells us. It says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us and in other words that's God's plan for your life which is a crazy wonderful adventure meaningful powerful purpose dignity life to the full freedom from guilt shame and condemnation and how do we do it 
We fix our eyes on Jesus. That's why I say Jesus-focused. We fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. That is what makes me passionate. That's why I do what I do. Because the God of the Bible came to this earth to give his life for me. And I believe it. I believe all of it. And even intellectual facts, when we look at them right, it can't be argued. You say, but what about what? Well, the what about part is faith. It's not called faith for no reason at all. We do have to step over into faith and say, I embrace Jesus. That's the beautiful part of it. I'd like for there to be no movement at this time in the room, and I want you to close your eyes and focus internally for just a moment. Many of you may be here today, and you've never really surrendered your life to Jesus. Uh, Maybe you've drifted from your relationship with God, but if you want to know this Jesus that I talk about, you want a new beginning, then I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond. And if you would like to be included in this closing prayer and surrender your life completely to Jesus, as you're just locked in with God right now, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. Raise your hand when I count to three because faith is when we respond outwardly to what's happening inwardly. Hey, Jesus loves you more than you can imagine and he died so that you could have life and life to the full and everything could change today. Will you lift your hand and connect with me and pray with me and make a new path today. One, two, three. Lift your hand for me. Lift your hand. That's me, Pastor. Yeah. Who else? Who else? I want that. Yes, thank you. Who else? You can put your hands down. Anyone else? All right, here's what I want us to do. I want everyone to stand. And what I want you to do is I would like you, along with this entire congregation of believers, to pray these words with me. Say this with me. Dear Jesus, <laughs> thank you for dying for my sin. I believe you're the Son of God. Please forgive my sin. Today I give up my past and I embrace the future that you have for me. In Jesus' name, amen. City Life is able to continue making Jesus known through the consistent investments of many. If you would like to invest financially into the vision, you can do so at citylifecenter.org. Simply select the giving option that works best for you. Thank you for listening to this week's message from City Life Church. You can stay connected through Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We look forward to seeing you on Sunday.